Hello and welcome to another episode of Stroke FM. This is the inaugural episode of Stroke FM podcast in collaboration with the Canadian Stroke Consortium. We are proud of this partnership and look forward to delivering the very best in stroke education topics, scientific updates, and care across the stroke spectrum. Without any further ado, this is our first show on Mr. Clean, no IV. Here with me today are two esteemed colleagues and guests, and we're going to have a good conversation around Mr. Clean No IV. So, gentlemen, introduce yourselves. Maybe Bijo, you go first. Uh, thank you, Herman. Uh, I'm Bijo Amenan. I'm a stroke neurologist uh, at the University of Calgary. Hi there. I'm Andrew Demchuk. I'm also a stroke neurologist at the University of Calgary. Excellent. Welcome to you both. So, we're going to talk about Mr. Clean No IV. Mr. Clean, of course, you know, the, the sort of eminent. Uh, uh, EVT trials, and, and now they followed up with uh, sort of what they said was a pragmatic approach to looking at uh, taking patients directly to thrombectomy versus uh, having sort of bridging therapy with thrombolysis and then thrombectomy. Um, and uh, some so, sort of 30,000 foot view was that they, they sort of said it was, a, it was a sort of a pragmatic design. They didn't have an aspects cut off. They looked at all kinds of occlusions. They managed to do it during the COVID-19 uh, sort of era. And, uh, and at the end of the day, they, the trial was set up as trying to show uh, it was designed as a, as a superiority study, right? Um, um, and so maybe we'll start there. Uh, let, let's talk about this whole pragmatism part. Uh, do, do, do we, what do we think about that? Pragmatism essentially means, you know, you uh, reflect uh, real-world practice. Um, and I just think, you know, the way the study is designed um, uh, with the uh, uh, test arm, which is to defer thrombolysis and offer it only as rescue, uh, that's a protocolized approach that moves away from a real-world practice uh, uh, because it limits uh, the uh, physician discretion. And so uh, that to me, you know, is the biggest issue with uh, pragmatism. Obviously, if you uh, want to go formal, you could consider doing the presses two uh, template, and you'll see that on uh, uh, many points, uh, the trial uh, would not be considered pragmatic. Now, that's not a point against the trial. It's an explanatory trial by design and uh, has its own value. Uh, but, you know, I wouldn't call it pragmatic. Fair enough. Andrew, what about you? Do you think there's a... Anything that from that sort of 30,000 foot view that you thought, you know, this trial does some things well and other things that just from a design perspective were not considered uh, kind of in a real world way? Yeah, I mean, in general, the Mr. Clean group uh, does trials in a more inclusive way. I've always been uh, very um, appreciative of actually how they do their trials. They they typically will not have too many exclusion criteria, and I think this this uh, may, perhaps not quite pragmatic, is still has a lot of a real world feel to it because uh, they they just have very few exclusions. They don't really have aspects you know exclusions or any uh, major uh, other things. So it does have a real world, somewhat pragmatic uh, perspective to it. That's pretty cool. Okay, and. Uh... 
they did design it to test the idea of superiority, right? That's right. And then that and that was an interesting I, I personally am surprised they did that. I was surprised when they were running this trial that they went for superiority. I mean, we know from some of the other trials that uh, that uh, essentially these two approaches are really close to equivalent, but we haven't seen really much evidence of superiority of one over the other. And so uh, to me, I, I would have just designed this as non-inferiority and, and skipped the superiority. And in fact, because of the added cost of TPA, um, who needs superiority here? You just need non-inferiority. That's right. Yeah. And I think that they, they obviously went for a very high bar there. Yeah. Although I, I, I do uh, have, you know, like uh, some thoughts on this issue. Um, so, um, uh, you know, I think conceptually, like when they were designing the trial, the idea was, uh, you know, they were concerned about harm with thrombolysis, right? Uh, and so uh, uh, the question then becomes here, you have large vessel occlusions. Uh, these patients are all going for endovascular thrombectomy. And now if I actually give a thrombolytic, uh, it might actually cause more harm. And therefore, uh, the idea that possibly then by not giving the thrombolytic, uh, uh, you know, this arm would be superior to the other arm. So I think that's the way they were thinking about uh, that whole question. Uh, and then I do have some concerns with uh, just, uh, you know, non-inferiority um, with a small trial, right? Uh, uh, because then you have to have wider non-inferiority margins which essentially means that if you actually show non-inferiority, there is a risk that your non-inferiority is actually inferior clinically. And uh, so, you know, like as uh, trialists, they were also concerned about choosing a smaller non-inferiority margin that would then inflate the sample size. And so that was also a factor in them choosing possibly a superiority design. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah. So essentially opens the door to some kind of... Uh... A little bit of questioning of that true non-inferiority uh, aspect, right? And I re I vividly recall how they 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 had just a one line on that slide, which was nice. But they said, you know, yeah, it is like you know, like how do you confuse people? And so you say it is not superior, it is not non-inferior. So it is what exactly? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a it's a known unknown. That's right. That's a famous uh, Donald Rumsfeld quotation. That's right. So we are in the in the known unknowns. I, I very distinctly recall that. I think I, I recall almost like a single slide with that with that word. We showed that it is it is non-superior and it is non non-inferior. Yeah. <laughs> to take issue with Bijoy's pragmatic um, argument, the Mr. Clean investigators in their method slide did call their trial pragmatic, and the reason they called it pragmatic is deferred consent. Presenting at thrombectomy hospitals, no restrictions on aspects, tandem lesions, or M2 occlusions, and they even allowed rescue all to place. So that's why they felt they could call it pragmatic. That's right. That's exactly it. Pragmatism is a continuum. And so, you know, you could have, uh, you know, like, uh, so it's a scale, right? Like, and so uh, on that scale, I think this would fall somewhere in the middle. It wouldn't fall, you know, to the you know, extreme side of pragmatism. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, but that's exactly the, it, Andrew. They, they exactly cited exactly those things. And, uh, and uh, you know, one of the other things that was interesting is, and they made a point of this, was that during the trial, uh, they made sure that centers had sort of a good quality or, or some sort of level of performance. They said that they provided feedback to centers to ensure that their growing puncture times were maintained and so on. So there was some sort of, constant heterogeneous intervention to make sure that 
centers were doing things correctly, which, you know, could in the sample size, uh, in, in, you know, potentially do things. And, and of course, there's side benefits. We know this ourselves. We try to fix our door to needle times. Well, it, guess what? It improves door to growing times. The whole system kind of improves. So are you making my point uh, that they intervened uh, to move away from real life practice? Uh, did they do that? Is that what you're saying, woman? Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying that there was a variable in there kind of like um, a little, a little bit like it's not exactly analogous, but it's a little bit like the whole Sampras trial, right? Like people think, oh, it's just dual antiplatelets versus a stent, but actually the medical arm had quite a bit of like life coaching and yeah, and it's a good thing, exactly right. Like when you actually look at their times and you compare it with, um, say, um, uh, the two Chinese trials, um, uh, they're actually really fast. The Mr. Clean No IV uh, folks, right? Like from onset to uh, 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 you know, like uh, arrival in hospital, and that maybe has to do with their jurisdiction too. Uh, they are a small country, but you know, like again, with if you compare the arrival to uh, needle times, they were really fast. So that's a good thing. You know, the trial itself was focused on quality too, and uh, and then you know the results therefore reflect that. Yeah, they they showed that uh, director thrombectomy um, sort of median growing puncture times was 130 minutes with versus 135 for the TPA EVT arm, which yeah is, is actually very impressive. Um, they they also made a little comment. Sorry, Andrew, you're going to say yeah, something. I was just going to say that I think that explains why this trial, like if you look at the four different bridging trials that have been published or presented now, this trial actually shows a more favorable light to the combination than some of the other trials have in terms of outcomes. And I think it reflects on the fact that they had such good time processes. TPA tends to perform better uh, in combination with EVT if you're really fast. And that's, I think, why we see everything a little bit in the opposite direction with Mr. Clino IV compared to the Chinese trials, for example. Yeah, that's an important point Andrew brings up, right? Like if you actually lay out these trials now, uh, and then you see, you know, the speed of thrombolysis, you'll see that as the speed of thrombolysis is improving, uh, you know, the results seem to be shifting it slowly in favor of uh, thrombolysis, right? Early thrombolysis. And so that's interesting, although it doesn't capture the entire range, but it does tell you that, uh, you know, faster thrombolysis possibly uh, could actually be, you know, like better in these patients. So, uh, I use the word possibly, right? Because uh, none of these trials showed, uh, what is it? Nothing. So In the SKIP trial, there was a suggestion that if you had very early thrombolysis, yeah, there was a favoring of combination therapy. So I think that will, it'll be really interesting to see the pool data of the six trials when the other two are are finished to, to look at this very issue. With with the slide they also put up kind of saying all of the trials are concordant with each other. Do you think that's like just as we tease apart the nitty gritties, they're, they're a little bit different, right? And so potentially that slide may also, uh, again, it plays into the narrative of the uh, non-superior and non-non-inferior, but it, they're actually very different trials, like the direct MT and so on. Like they're, uh, but but if when you pool them, I, I again distinctly recall the odds ratio essentially sitting at one, right? One point zero four. One point zero four. With a range of point eight three to one point two nine, as it stands. <laughs> there you go. Although you know, like um, I think uh, you know, one thing that often is missed with uh, uh, the uh, pooling of such results is, you know. Why do we pool results, right? The idea is that we want to capture this heterogeneity that exists out there. Uh, but if, you know, trials fall into baskets, so uh, like, and let me explain what I mean by that. So Mr. Clean, no IV falls into a certain basket, very fast, 
you know, thrombolysis times, but in a smaller jurisdiction, which means, you know, the onset to thrombolysis time is also short. Um, this compares to, say, you know, the Chinese-Japanese trials with, you know, very prolonged uh, dough-to-needle times. Then you don't, do not have the entire range of times, right? And so, yes, you can pool these results, but do they actually tell you about what really happens with very fast thrombolysis? Maybe not, because you don't capture the entire range there, right? And so pooling is a good thing because it's more robust, uh, but then you need to have the entire range of trials, which, uh, you know, maybe CISDirect could help, uh, but, but, but at least, you know, with the current trials, I feel that they're two baskets that we're trying to pull. That's right. And that's where the pragmatism with this level of quality may actually downplay the effect of EVT because we know that distal occlusions will, if, if treated quickly, could open up with thrombolysis, right? And so that plays into it. As, as Andrew said, they included them two occlusions. Um, just so we kind of get a bit of chance to talk about the future landscape as well, um, let's chat a little bit about... Um, what they talked about um, as far as, they, they made a point to say that their atrial fibrillation rates were low. That was kind of just, you know, neither here nor there, but it was low, 24% to 32% in both arms. Um, but what was more interesting uh, was the business about bleeding. Uh, and, and they essentially had no statistical difference in bleeding, uh, which, which in the post uh, sort of interview that they did for the AHA, um, they also sort of, uh, uh, Sort of, Dr. Ross said that um, you know he felt was really striking, and that and that it was an unexpected result. Yeah, I, I was really this was that was the most surprising thing for me in this trial, is if you look at the other three trials, there was a more expected slight increase in bleeding. In fact, it, the symptomatic hemorrhage rate was two percent higher uh, if you combine the data from those three trials: Skip, Direct MT, and Devd. Uh, you had 2% higher with combination versus direct, which, which makes sense to me biologically. But what was different in Mr. Clean and No IV is it actually looked, it is actually the other direction by 0.6%. Obviously, none of this is statistically significant. But it was interesting. Why is direct suddenly going the other direction in Mr. Clean No IV? And there may be a hint in the data from subarachnoid hemorrhage, because if you look at the subarachnoid hemorrhage rate, it was double in the direct MT group versus the combined. And maybe it just, there was more passes. You've got more clot burden because you haven't given TPA and you're fussing around on these arteries longer. Uh, and I don't know, but it was a surprising finding. The numbers are small. It's a single study, so perhaps it's noise. But I was, I was surprised by that. Yeah, like if I'm a frequentist, I would say, oh, you know, there's no difference, right, between uh, uh, symptomatic ICH rates or hemorrhage rates. But if I'm a Bayesian, then, you know, <laughs> uh, in fact, you know, like now you start seeing signals and uh, it's fascinating, as Andrew points out, that the hemorrhage rates are actually less in the IVTPA group, right? Like the point estimates uh, 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 by a small percentage. And then you wonder why. So here are patients who have lytics on board but you still do not seem to bleed as much. And if you now look at not just the symptomatic ICH rates, but just, you know, like ICH rates, right? So this is imaging ascertained ICH rates. They also are not high in the IVTPR, right? And so that's really interesting. And to me, that tells you this time effect that, you know, if you're receiving thrombolysis faster, then possibly, you know, the harm that people say that happens with thrombolysis is not there. And then I think the key thing is actually the mortality difference. And this is fascinating because there is actually a 5%, correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, like a 5% difference, right, in mortality rates at 90 days. 
uh, with uh, lesser mortality in those people who have actually received IVTPA upfront. Uh, uh, and so, which means that if they did that trial in maybe around 1,200 to 1,600 patients, they would have seen a clear difference in mortality. And that's a big deal, right? Absolutely. Very that's unusual. Deal, yeah. Very surprising, actually. The whole, that whole safety outcome slide, I'm looking at it now, and it, it just sort of, uh, it's really um, a bit of a, you know, slaying of, of, of biology in some ways that we thought around this issue. And it's, it's worth really evaluating this more. I'm, I'm fascinated to see what these subgroups start looking at when we, we look at the data with, with bigger numbers, with all the trials together on, on some of these issues. That's a great term, slaying of biology. We like biological plausibility. And when the data goes against the biological plausibility, it's a problem. Uh, again, their pragmatic, in quotations, approach may have uh, caused issue here because we know, again, that there's benefits of having TP on board or biologically plausible things like mocking up other, uh, you know, other um, uh, debris, you know, essentially distal emboli or fragments or even softening the clot as they're going up, depending on what type of clot they're dealing with. So there are all these kind of cool things. Um, they, they really focused on the reperfusion, right? And reperfusion is definitely a real thing and not benign. Reperfusion injury is a real thing. I think more and more we are able to see a lot of contrast staining post-DVT, which is quite frequent. And some of that ends up being petechial, some of that ends up being contrast, some of it ends up being contrast with hemorrhage. And it just speaks to the fact that, you know, there's a, quite a bit of blood-brain barrier breakdown and that... Uh, uh, and, and that reperfusion is a real thing. And, and so they thought that that's the signal. Uh, but interestingly, recently a paper came out showing again after three passes, the risk of complications go really high, which is interestingly is actually the same thing for central lines, by the way. Uh, you know, after three passes, complication rate goes up sixfold. So I suspect something like that will also emerge with multiple passes and uh, we, which is not as simple as just reperfusion. Like it's more nuanced, right? Yeah. There is one other factor in this trial that we have to uh, examine a little more closely, and that is 19 patients in this trial received escaped uh, endo, uh, thrombolysis late uh, after, uh, at the end of the thrombectomy procedure. They allowed for this IV treatment. They called it escape IVT. We, I'd like to look at the hemorrhage risk in that group. Now, it's only a small number of patients, so 19, so uh, maybe it probably didn't materially impact the overall bleeding, but they could have a higher rate of bleeding, right, because you're treating with lytics quite late. I'm very interested to hear more about that 19. They didn't provide any information about that in the presentation. That was the rescue all to place, basically, right? That's yeah. what you called it, I think. Yeah. yeah, 19 out of the 261 mm -hmm. had rescue. Small numbers. I was actually surprised how few actually ended up with rescue. Uh, but, you know, is the bleeding more of an issue there? Because that was assigned to the direct EVT arm. Yeah, I think the protocol was designed in such a way that this rescue was being offered when patients were nearing the four and a half hour time window at resume. Right, Andrew? Like... I'm not really sure, Bijoy. Like, I, I, it'll be interesting. I look. Hopefully, one of us gets to review this paper at some point and make sure. I would. I would want to really emphasize. Uh, a discussion on that point. Yeah, and that's a key thing that the results are not fully out there or presented. The paper's not out for, for our listeners. Um, and I, I think it goes back to that uh, statement, right? The whole uh, non-superiority, no non-inferiority. Um, again, kind of considerations that were real world, but with that, some of the granularity may have uh, may have been lost with, with this amount of N value. 
Uh, and I think that subgroup stuff will be interesting. Can I ask a question about a non-inferiority margin since Bijoy has statistical training? Uh, in a pooled, in a meta-analysis Bijoy, where you have, uh, what is an acceptable non-inferiority analysis amongst several trials? Can you actually say something about non-inferiority and what margin would you use, uh, for example, in this bridging question? Right now, the lower margin is 0.83 with the four trials. What would you consider reasonable to say that a meta-analysis shows non-inferiority? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So um, the way I would think of non-inferiority, there are two ways to actually think of, uh, you know, the non-inferiority band and its appropriate choice, right? So one would be uh, uh, the idea as to what is a minimal clinical important difference that's acceptable to us. And how do we frame that? So we would ask ourselves, uh, you know, what is my tolerance for the point estimate of uh, the uh, test arm to be inferior to the control arm uh, and still consider that to be non-inferior? So by that, I mean, you know, uh, let's say that uh, uh, take a dichotomous outcome, uh, let's say Rankin 02, and uh, in uh, the test arm, you achieve, uh, uh, say, 35%, uh, uh, and in the control arm, you achieve 40%. So now there's a delta of 5%. Is that enough for you, right? Like uh, if, uh, you know, you would, would you still consider that equivalent? And at least based on, you know, like the literature that we have with acute stroke and cardiology, uh, the non-inferiority margins that are potentially based on MCIDs that we could consider acceptable uh, may be somewhere in the range of um, 2 to 5%, right? And so if that's the case, then, you know, you could choose a non-inferiority margin of say around 5% or so, uh, which might actually give you a trial of somewhere around 1,600 odd subjects, right? Um, that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is where you would say, okay, you know, uh, here's uh, my uh, uh, control arm, and then here's placebo. And so now what's the effect size between control and placebo? And I want to make sure that the non-inferior intervention does not fall close to the placebo. That's actually closer to the intervention. And I need to preserve this much of the effect size of the control versus placebo uh, uh, effect. Now, the problem with the bridging trials is, what do you consider placebo, right? Like, uh, is it from, you know, like what the uh, uh, Chinese trials did uh, with Hermes? Uh, where they said, okay, here's the effect size of endovascular treatment uh, with IVTPA versus placebo uh, uh, conservative management. Here's my effect size, and I take a certain margin. Uh, it sort of becomes a little bit more complicated. So I choose the MCID approach. Um, I think that's more understandable. And uh, from that perspective, I think, you know, the maximum that we can tolerate is a 5% margin. Uh, and which would then mean that, you know, like uh, we'll need to pull uh, the results. The sample needs to be around 1,600 at least for uh, a 5% uh, non-inferiority margin, right? And I think we can achieve that when Swift Direct contributes data to this. Right now, I think we are somewhere around 1,300 odd, or um, 1,400 odd, I guess, right? Like 
almost 1,600. Yeah, so if I'm understanding you correctly, Bijoy, it, 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 to you it's more the absolute difference in dichotomous MRS02 than, uh, than it is the confidence intervals of the odds ratio. Yeah, like the confidence intervals of the odds ratios do translate into, um, uh, uh, or I would say the, it is the absolute differences that can then translate into odds ratios, but I would never use odds ratios because they are not intuitive, right? So I would use the absolute differences. And this is what, you know, like, uh, uh, like there's a, there are a couple of, uh, you know, these papers uh, uh, by Jess Saber and group uh, where they have actually commented on this, right? So it's easier to understand absolute differences. Odds ratios are more complex. But again, I would put this to you, right? Like, uh, so if you look at the Chinese trial, uh, is a odds ratio of 0.8 in favor of uh, the, uh, uh, you know, like um, uh, 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 control arm, okay for you to consider the intervention arm as uh, non-inferior, right? And so that's the question you ask. And uh, I think, you know, like an odds ratio of 0.8 may not be kosher, right? Because uh, uh, if you just consider the point estimate, uh, an odds ratio of 0.8 would mean that uh, I think, uh, you know, there's a concern that the uh, that you're not truly non-inferior. There's a fi uh, one in 20 chance. Right now, the dichotomous endpoint 0.2 is going to actually favor direct MT. So it's far from non-inferior at this point with four trials, right? There's actually more patients with 0.2 uh, in the direct MT than there is with the uh, with the combination. Although so... I think, you know, when you pool the results, um, uh, you know, with the sample size, with, when self-direct is added, if the point estimates are all, uh, you know, like the way they are playing out, which means that if you look at the grotto bars, they seem all very close to each other. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, it is likely that they would fall under the five percent non-inferiority margin. Agreed. They're not even one. Per they're not even one percent inferior right now. They're actually a slightly inc better. Yeah, exactly. And which is why, you know, like the delta. So essentially, the non-inferiority margin is where you 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 do the delta. So the difference, right? And then you calculate the confidence interval around it, and then you look at the lower margin. And so uh, I'm quite confident <laughs> that <laughs> uh, when you pool the results, it'll meet the 5% non-inferiority margin. Has this uh, now changed the way you practice? Yes. How so? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm now, uh, I now allow myself to consider not doing bridging sometimes in certain situations. I'm, I'm, I, I allow myself to apply precision medicine to my practice a little bit more. I feel comfortable that the evidence is such is that I don't have to give TPA when I go to EVT. I, it's, it's an option. It's certainly still reasonable. And I would never question someone who did. But I also now have the flexibility to not consider it in certain clinical situations. Now, I would like to see a bit more data before I'm, you know, uh, we, we have a real definitive answer. I'm not sure this is, we're at guideline stage yet with this, certainly not a level one recommendation yet, but I think it does allow us the flexibility. And as Bijoy will probably tell you, surveys are pointing toward that, that, that phys the neurologists now are, are considering it somewhat optional if they want to give the TPA in some clinical settings. Yeah, BJ, you did a great survey. Do you want to sort of tell us maybe that and then also a little bit of bridging towards what you think is sort of some future yeah, yeah. ideas? I, I think, you know, like the, the, the thing that's, uh, you know, like, like a cat amongst the pigeons is the mortality data with Mr. Clean No IV. 
And so if you just look at the raw estimates, right, one in 20. So if you treat 20 people, one person won't die uh, with the fast thrombolysis arm. Uh, and uh, uh, that to me, you know, like it's a big deal because that's not something we found in the other trials, right? And so this is something that is, un un is not understood as well. We'll have to uh, uh, look at the final papers. But this also brings us to this other point, which is, you know, like there is data now, accruing data that suggests that tenecti plays a safer. And so if you can now, you know, like potentially think of that thrombolytic, and then say, think that, oh, this could actually open up more arteries and maybe is more safer than altiplase so because of its pharmacodynamic properties, then would the mortality benefit increase? And so now, you know, like you just need to treat 10 patients or one patient to, uh, you know, like not die. And so that then, you know, makes it sort of, you know, like uh, difficult to wrap our heads around, you know, how this might actually change my practice, right? Because I think the one thing that uh, now, you know, like I understand is ah, if you have to give thrombolysis, you have to give it faster. I do agree with Andrew, you know, I, I still think that there are cases where, you know, you may want to uh, uh, defer. Uh, however, I, you know, after all this data, I think, you know, like the question is unanswered uh, and that given, you know, what's going to happen in the stroke space with tenecteplase, that we'll have to revisit this question, uh, uh, you know, entirely, right? Um, uh, and understand in more detail with bigger data. Uh, the survey seems to suggest that, as Andrew's pointing out, uh, people are thinking about these issues. Uh, there are people who are thinking about, you know, uh, 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 the, uh, when should I give the thrombolytic? Um, uh, there is a preference for tenecti place. Uh, and so those are interesting dynamics. So I think the question is still unanswered. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next uh, uh, few months and uh, years. Those are both excellent comments, especially the fact that, you know, it'll, it'll be probably a rush to put any of this into a guideline, that it's, it's still early. Um, and I think that, um, you know, late thrombolysis trials aside, um, it, it does give you pause, as you said, if a person's kind of inching past three hours, like very close to four and a half hours, maybe has a slightly higher bleeding risk than you, than you think, and that the cath lab is immediately available, which is something really like as a process issue, AngioCat sort of addressed as well, another trial presented. If the cath lab is available, everyone's there. I think in those patients, it sounds like we have now a, a door. There, there's a bit of a door open that in that patient, we could take that patient directly to uh, to EVT uh, without giving them thromb a thrombolytic. Would that be fair? Yeah, I just want to make a couple really important uh, caveats here. Please remember that this these trials were all done at comprehensive stroke centers. So this does not apply to the primary stroke center scenario where you have a patient 60 minutes, an hour away. Uh, we have not tested that question. Uh, that if TPA is indicated, uh, it should be given at a primary stroke center and the patient should be transported. So this is only a question at the comprehensive stroke centers as it stands now with the information we have. In my opinion, we're in my opinion, we're gonna have the answer very soon in all this. This is the question in acute stroke in 2021. Yeah. And in fact, you know, the AngioCat and the best MSU results seem to suggest that, you know, the faster you thrombolize, you know, like maybe patients are better, right? So uh... Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do that. 
Yeah, we're going to talk about that in the future episode. I think the, uh, the, the best MSU results were striking. Like, I just want to underline what Andrew said, you know, the question, you know, like, this is the question uh, in the next, you know, like, years for us to answer, right? So this is the question. Yeah. And thanks for that important takeaway that, you know, in, in uh, thr thrombolytic eligible patients who are not at a comprehensive stroke center with a lot of expertise and, and the person power and being able to sort of open rooms quickly, that, that, that still eligible patients should probably receive thrombolysis and, and that should not be withheld. That's not the message. And it's kind of coaxed in that whole non-inferior non, non language as well. <laughs> so um, any parting final thoughts, gentlemen, on this, uh, on this and it, just on this fantastic discussion, any final words? Well, I would just say stay tuned. This group has already agreed to pool data, I'm understanding. So uh, not only will we see the results of the two remaining trials later this year, we're likely to see pooled data by early in 2022, where all the trials are together. And that's going to be absolutely fascinating. Bijo, any other final parting thoughts? Tell them, tell them about your trial that you're planning. That's yeah, right. so, a plug. This so, is... so, you know, to address these issues, um, to, to look at connected plays in, a, uh, uh, you know, in this um, uh, entire question, and to do it really pragmatically, uh, uh, so we want to follow from ACT and uh, do the study called Stream Stroke uh, that uh, will actually address this question. Uh, and I think, you know, like uh, with the network we have here, uh, you know, uh, uh, once we get funding, you know, it's quite likely that we will be able to, you know, uh, get uh, very good data that uh, informs our practice. Fantastic. Okay, so with that, uh, we would like to sign off from the inaugural CSC official first podcast. Um, and I really thank you for, for joining uh, today, coming together to talk about this fantastic uh, uh, and exciting area. And thank you so much for being here. So signing off from Toronto. Yeah, thanks so much. That was really fun. That was fun. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. See you next time. Stroke FM. Stroke FM.